welcome to this week's episode of the Making It in Asheville podcast. Uh, this podcast is your destination for stories about Asheville creators, makers, artists, uh, community leaders. On this podcast, we talk about uh, what these people are making in Asheville and how they are making it in Asheville. And I am your host, Tony Ubertaccio. About a year and a half ago, my wife and I moved to Asheville. We did not know what we were going to do, and we thought we uh be wise to have as many conversations with people in the community as possible to hear how they are making it and good things just might be the result of that we're almost 80 episodes in a whole lot of conversations uh later and we are so uh thankful for the community that we are now a part of this week's episode we're excited about um Jefferson Allison founder creator director of Jawbreaking is our guest and and Jefferson, please introduce yourself to the to the podcast audience, the the horde that listens weekly to this this podcast. Your cult of people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me, Tony. Um, yes, my name is Jefferson Ellison, and I am the chief creative at Jawbreaking. Jawbreaking is a business concept that insists on the new generation experience. It's we consider ourselves a manifestation of the youth quake. And that's a term that was coined in 1965 by Vogue's editor, Diana Vreeland. And it was, she says that, you know, the youth are driving culture through music, fashion, and conversation. And the, and the, and the purpose of it, it was around the time the Beatles were big. And the purpose was that without the youth, you cannot push culture forward. And so mm -hmm. we manifest that ex experience and that thought process through content. We own a content platform through products, we have a clothing line and through creative services because we have a marketing agency. I so love that. Love everything. Yeah. I'd never heard of youth, youth quake until, uh, you know, reading your website and trying to get a sense of what it is that jawbreaking brings to the table. And I, I love that as both a word that captures something much bigger than a single word typically can. Uh, and and by how true it feels, it's one of those things where when you hear it, you're like, yeah, obviously, <laughs> like, of yeah. course, the you, yes, that I know that seems so right. I'd never heard it, but clearly I now have always believed it. Um, and so what is that? I mean, what does that look like practically? How long how long have you been in jawbreaking? How long has jawbreaking existed? Uh, Jawbreaking started in 2008 as a clothing line in Raleigh by a girl named Ali Silverio, who now owns a different clothing line, State of Mind. Um, and it was she was 15, so it was it's always been rooted in youth culture. Mm -hmm. And she started, you know, making like jewelry on MySpace, and it turned into a brand. And you know, I started working with them when I met Ali when I moved to Raleigh to go to college, and I was styling at the time, and so we became friends, we worked together. I then started consulting with Jawbreaking. And when Jawbreaking was going under, um, I bought it from her. Wow. And so I bought it in 2016. And so we, so I bought it in 2016, we launched our content platform and our creative agency in 2018. When, so it's 20, you know, it's 2016. And you know that you have a friend that had a brand. Uh, at what? What are some of the calculations in your mind around? Maybe I can start my own. Buy this, and how do you actually buy a brand from someone? What was that process look like? What were you thinking about 2016? Sure. Well, 
I was really unhappy with my job. I was living in New York and I had taken a, I've been offered a job. I mean, I got offered a job the August before I started my senior year in college because I did a lot of freelancing in college. And uh, one of my really good friends was working for a company out of New York. And the guy, the owner, he like flew in from China to meet me at a mall. And he, um, and he, he said, he just offered me a job. He said, I don't know what you're going to do. You come highly recommended. So we just want to lock you down. And so I was like, okay, you're going to pay me well, give me things. And like, I didn't want to make $25,000 a year work as a PR assistant. So I'll do this instead. And it was kind of like a trap because I hated it. So oh. I was stuck in a job that I didn't feel like I could leave because I wanted to make a lot of money and I didn't really know what to do. And so I started freelancing and that's how I got back in line with jawbreaking. And then Allie and her mom, who's a business partner, told me they were going to shut it down. Wow. And I was like, okay, well, do you want to sell it? So we were, she was like, yeah, let's try to sell it. And so I worked in corporate fashion. So like I knew buyers from all major department stores. So I was like, well, maybe we can sell it to Macy's or maybe Dillard's will buy it or something like that. And we started having those conversations. But the process of selling a company is a two-year process. Y- yeah. And so they were like, we don't want to wait. It, it was like, I mean, it was July. They're like, if we can't get a check in hand by the end of the year, we're just going to shut her down. Huh. And I was like, well, that seems stupid. So what, what kind of scale, I'm sorry, but what kind of scale are we talking about with, with jawbreaking? Like, is this a brand that if you're in the right pocket, you you know the look, the feel? Like, what kind of sales numbers I mean, are we talking about? Jawbreaking has, jawbreaking has been worn by every member of One Direction, Fifth Harmony, Taylor Swift, Kylie, Kylie Jenner. Like, jawbreaking has a global presence so so listeners who might have the ignorance that i have that's a those names are represent the biggest names in music maybe period full stop like those are gigantic celebrities yeah yeah yeah. wow okay and and it was really something that it i mean if you google jawbreaking one direction we have there was one point jawbreaking was in urban outfitters paxon zumias it was at the time like 2013 to 2015, Jawbreaking was one of the biggest brands in like YouTube culture. Amazing. And so that, that's, gr- that's great context to talk about than trying to exit Jawbreaking because there's a tendency, it, it, I don't want to say just in Asheville, but like, oh, I have a friend who has a brand and she, she wants to stop doing it. And you're like, all right, well, she had like 2,000 Instagram followers and she's shutting down a business that the world maybe never cared about jawbreaking is not that no okay i mean we and and it's a longer story than it deserves but i mean i when i bought jawbreaking it had we had thirty thousand followers on twitter a hundred thousand followers on instagram it was like the beginning of the instagram brand style stuff Mm -hmm. and um they and they and they had made a lot of really poor financial decisions mm-hmm. that put them in a place where it wasn't working for them anymore, and so they were going. So no matter what, they were going to be undervalued. Got it. Like selling a product, selling the brand was. They were not going to get. They were not going to get what it w- it was worth if they would have sold it two years ago. And and selling a brand is a very long process, you know, like. People want to see numbers. They want to do all this stuff. They're like, we don't want to do this. If it's not, if we can't sell it by December and get a check in hand, we got to go. Got it. And so 
I was I was really unhappy. I was talking to my godmom, who is the light of my life, and she was like the woman who convinced me to go to fashion school in the first place. And I was like, is this an opportunity? You know, like, should I do this? And she was like, you should think about it and then you should see if you can make it work where it's you don't let opportunity slip away from you. And so essentially what I did was I sent them an anonymous offer ha. to focus the assets. Assets so, meaning brand, mark, meaning uh, uh, social accounts, I, all that. I, did, I didn't take the LLC. I just took the domains, the social handles. I purchased the digital assets. Yeah. And I sent them an anonymous offer. They said yes. And I was like, oh, by the way, it's me. And they're like, <laughs> oh, okay, great. So that, yeah, that feels very savvy. Did you like Google how to buy a brand? You just no, that's amazing. But I just didn't want it to be skeevy. Heard. You know, I didn't want them to feel trapped or feel awkward about you know the conversation we needed to have if I was going to buy it. So I, I wanted them that I wanted to give them an out. Sure. Where if they said no, we don't want it. This isn't enough money or whatever. Yeah. We could say, oh, I could say, oh, that's a, from some stranger. Let's move on. And then no one's feelings are hurt. Nothing's weird. I, I, I love that. I love the energy in that. And I love the execution in that. And now uh, to actually purchase it, was it some sort of a, I believe the language people will use is like a seller financed buyout where like the money you make pays them for the business or did you uh, you have enough I, from your career that you could just make yeah, a check? I bought it. I bought it. I just bought it outright. Amazing. And they got well. That's not. That's, I bought it outright, and they got a percentage of profits for the next couple of years. Okay. Because yeah. We were being undervalued, and you know, and and like I told her, you know. You, no matter what you do, you're undervalued sure. because the because the company as a whole and the brand and the things that are happening are only worth what someone's willing to pay for them. And when you ha and when you can't sell, when you cannot sell a business as a whole, mm. you can't give me the LLC, you can't give me all the stuff. Then it makes it a more a burden for me to really pick, put that on. Mm -hmm. And so you don't get full value. But I wanted her to have some buy-in, so we did a transition that works for everyone. And everything worked out. That's amazing. So 2016, you make what I'll call an absolute, uh, I don't want to say power move, but a, a big move. Uh, you now own a brand. You go from em employee to owner. Uh, talk me through what are the f maybe first couple steps that you take? Uh, so I was still working full time at my job because I needed money to pay for trying to have a brand. Sure. And we essentially, I was trying to incorporate job breaking into the work that I was doing. Cause essentially what I did was I was a fashion director and account manager for a conglomerate that owned, that was, we were a producer for, I mean, like my accounts were everything from Dollar General and Walmart to like Saks and Bergdorf's. Wow. So we made in-house products for everyone, but we also owned brands at those retailers. Yeah. And so I was essentially trying to make jawbreaking one of our brands. So yeah. my goal was to buy it and then sell it to my boss. That's a, that's a savvy place to put yourself. I'm, I'm so yeah, excited yeah, to hear this story. 
It wouldn't have been so good. And I was, but I didn't, I didn't know. Okay. No, I did not know what running a successful online business looked like. Mm-hmm. And I really undervalued the fact that Jawbreaking had nine employees and I was trying to do it from like seven to nine in my living room. Mm. And so we made a lot of really shitty choices. The first website we had was like done on a phone. It was like a free thing for Shopify. It, everything was awful. It was shitty. It was terrible. And I and I was really swamped at work. And I couldn't. Um, I couldn't do my job that was paying my bills mm-hmm. and do job breaking successfully. And so jawbreaking became like this became a brand and an audience that has kind of kept in my pocket for the re- and for the rest of the time that I was in New York and we did we we did a lot of press shit we did a lot of we did like custom pieces and things like that but we completely stripped the e-commerce because it the first year it was just such a shit show mm. and I was like this is just bleeding money I don't want to keep wasting money and and fucking with the audience. So let's just chill. Yeah. There's there's something about doing it right versus doing it and sometimes not doing it is is better. Yeah, and also because when I bought it, I bought it as an investment and then over time I became obsessed with the concept. Like I really loved the idea I think the first campaign I did was called Wear Your Heart on Your Sleeve mm. because we were selling graphic t-shirts. And I love the idea that t-shirts are such an, an approachable and accessible product, but they're also a way of expressing yourself in a really like specific, like very clear way. Like you can have a shirt that says, I'm in a bad mood, right? Like I loved the idea that we were making something that everyone, that people were living their lives in. And I, I've always loved that about product. Like these are like these are the clothes you're going to your first concert in. This is a shirt that you're going to give to your girlfriend that she's going to sleep in until you get married. Like this is a sleeve you're going to cry on when your boyfriend breaks your heart. Like mm. I really like that as a concept and I wasn't doing it justice. And so I was like, let us just like jawbreaking will, jawbreaking will always have a legacy. That's the thing about brands. Brand, and that's the thing about business. Businesses go up and down. And so jawbreaking isn't in urban outfits anymore because I don't want it to be. And retail is just different now. But, you know, no matter what jawbreaking was for those two years when we weren't doing what we wanted to do, it doesn't change the, whatever, the, what, 12 year, 13 year legacy that we have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was like, let's just put it on pause until we can do it right. Going to interrupt this episode to give a quick shout out to our season sponsor, Range Urgent Care. We have a special uh, discount available. If you have not heard of Range before, I'll give you a quick highlights as to why we think they are doing things so special and so um, perhaps the right way in, in healthcare. One is that when you schedule a visit, you will not be sitting in a waiting room. Uh, you will arrive on time and they will see you on time. They work with most major insurance companies, but if you want to pay out of pocket, you can too. There are a very, I'll call it simple and straightforward options as to how uh, and what it might cost to visit Range Urgent Care. 
out of pocket. You want to pay as you go. It's $149 per visit. That means x-rays, checkups, procedures, medications, prescriptions, anything that you uh, might need to see a doctor for but is not necessarily an emergency room visit, consider range as a great option for that. But now I have chosen to uh, opt into their membership. And what that means is that I'm paying $30 a month and I can see range a number of times of a year. I can have online visits. I can be seen uh, through some sort of a Zoom visual portal. Uh, but to me, that's a hedge that, that makes sense. Uh, play with some power tools, lift weights, ride motorcycles, any of those things. To me, the membership makes perfect sense. If you're a family, they have family plan memberships. If you are a small business, you have some employees, you can offer the membership as a benefit to your company. Any and all of those, uh, to me, stand out as reasons that you should check out Range Urgent Care. Uh, we have a page on our website, making it in Nashville forward slash range, where we write a little bit about range. We show you some of the memberships. If you think that the membership is a good fit for you, uh, you can visit makingitinashville.com forward slash range. Using that link, you will get a free month and an annual membership, or you can visit rangeurgentcare.com and just let them know that we sent you. Hard decision sounds like hindsight, the right decision. So you're at least two more years in New York City, if I'm tracking the timeline correctly. Yes. Um, and that puts us at around 2018. And then what what is the the next mile marker? So I moved back from New York. I have um, some personal things that really ruined the rest of my time in New York. I, my roommate, and I, and I actually don't care anymore. I used to care, but my roommate, who was my best friend in college and my coworker got me fired. Oh no. Because she, because she didn't, essentially I got a promotion mm -hmm. that made me her boss and she didn't like it. It's and hard. so she got me fired and we had a very, our work, the company culture that, I, that worked, it was terrible, and we and all of our employees worked in China except for the creative team, and so we and we lived together. So we were always on like FaceTimes at two o'clock in the morning when China's up and working. Right. Yeah. And so I would be asleep, <laughs> and she's like on the phone with my boss talking shit and lying about me to get me fired. And so I end up getting fired, and like just to show you, like it was such a crazy thing. She spent three months getting me fired and interviewing my replacement and never told me. Oh goodness. And I was like, ill. <laughs> like, ugh. Um, and so it ended up <sighs> happening that I got fired the same with I got fired like the month my lease was up. Hmm. And so I was like, I am not about to sign a lease mm -hmm. and be unemployed. Yeah. So I moved back to Asheville. Great. And I was going to be here for a few months just to chill, to rethink, to figure it out. And then I'll go back, new job, new lease, whatever. And I really missed my parents and my niece and my godkids and my friends. And at the time, fashion wasn't hiring. So looking for a new job was taking forever. And so I started kind of ruminating on what being an astro and like bringing back 
jawbreaking in a fuller way would look like and ended up staying to see if that would work. Mm-hmm. And so I moved back at the end of 2017. And in February of that year, I jawbreaking was, we were about to start making new products. We had found a new manufacturer, all the things. And then I got an, I got a call from Jennifer Pickering at Leaf to have a meeting with her. Um, and Jennifer and her husband are old friends of my parents. Like I've known her my entire life. So I didn't really know. I thought she just wanted to go to lunch. Mm-hmm. And she asked me to, if I'd be interested in helping them with their merch and with their social. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, okay, money, because what people don't tell you is that like when I am not like, I am not someone, I'm a tourist, I'm stubborn. I'm not someone who's going to take on a hundred thousand dollar loan right. to, for a business idea. I'm, I'm just not that person. I'm not wired that way. I, I, I think most people, if they're not wired like you, they should be wired like you because taking out a hundred thousand dollar loan for a business idea, is probably not the best first step or fifth step yeah, even. Yeah. I'm especially so I was like I need money to fund my mm-hmm. business. So I took so I took the job and was essentially and it was like part time and it was like I was balancing both. And then I started I said I started looking for more work because I was like okay I need more money to reinvest in my business. And so I got to a point where I was balancing a bunch of part time jobs, mm-hmm. like part time marketing gigs, and I was like this doesn't make sense. And so that <laughs> that's how our agency came about mm-hmm. because I was like, I have a lot of marketing jobs. I love marketing. I really love what I do. This is something that could work. It's just not going to work like this. Mm-hmm. And so we needed to, we need to restructure it. And then around this. And so around the spring of 2018, we launched our agency and our content platform because we launched the bl- we launched the blog as a way to reintroduce ourselves to our audience. We're like we have we know we have been online in a while. We haven't been making clothes, so let's just start the blog mm-hmm. and see what happens. And so it all just it, <laughs> it all happened at the same time. And it was something where, uh, like in fashion, it's a very common business model for a content producer to sell products and also offer creative services under one moniker. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you want my perspective one way or the other. Mm -hmm. If you're wearing my clothes, that's my perspective. You're reading my stuff. That's my perspective. You want me to produce a party for you. You want me to do it my way. And so it made, it made a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I've had to explain that to people because like a lot of people don't know who complex is and they don't care about man repeller or things like that. And I was like, I promise you, I'm not the only person doing a business like this. Sure. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like an audience thing. You need to know the audience, but the, I, I see how all of those things come perfectly in line. I think, um, I, I just wanted, if only for, for potentially identifying some fun serendipity, um, two things, one leaf, as someone new to Asheville, I thought this Leaf, Leafs festival was like a celebration of like the leaves changing colors on trees. I didn't know. And it took the first full year, I think, 
to realize that LEAF is a acronym for something. Lake, yes. Lake, some, Lake. Lake Leading Arts Festival. It, well, it was an acronym, but now, it now it's just a called. Thing. Okay. Right. Yes. Uh, and Lake then I. Leading Arts Festival. I, have you been to a Visit Asheville training like about a year and a half ago? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were in the same one together. Oh, we I sat across from each other. I didn't notice that. Did that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny because uh, I, I did, couldn't remember your name, but I was like, oh, we need to connect with a guy who runs social at Leaf. And so like you're on a spreadsheet as social from Leaf. Man, I did a bad job. Great to see you after all these. <laughs> so that was like one of the f- first things we did. We we're like, well, we got to get a, a lay of the land, figure out what's going on around here. Uh, and we went to the Visit Asheville training in person when that was a thing that humans could do. Uh, so, wow. So funny. Thank you uh, for already noticing that. Maybe you had talked to Sarah about uh, that connection in the past. I am uh, off in left field doing my own thing sometimes. La la land. Okay. So you now connect the dots. You see a complex uh, brand, maybe like a vice. I don't know if they, they must have clothing lines inside, but you're thinking uh, brand that is much bigger. It's not just media. It's not just uh, clothing. It is a, it's like a vibe. It's a mood. It's a expertise. And what are some of the first steps? You mentioned you launch a website with a blog. What else happens next? And how are you thinking about all of the options in front of you as possible routes forward? So the the first step was really defining what jawbreaking was. And I think that is something that I always knew. And I think anyone who has ever met, anyone who's ever gotten a drink with me knows exactly what jawbreaking is. Because it is exactly who I am, which is just, I am a product of, America. It's a very American concept. And so I needed to figure out how can we, and by, and by American, I mean, I'm an educated person. I come from educated people. I, you know, I'm from Asheville. So like I have done all the debutantes and the brigades and all that sort of thing. I am a child of the country club. I am very much proper Amer- like Southern girl type of person who wears denim and likes to curse and drinks too much. And that is very much this idea of what America wants to be like this, almost like this, this pretension that is also very crass. And, you know, we wear T-shirts and jeans, but we make a lot of money. And I was like, and that's very much who I am naturally. Anyone who meets me is like, you're really loud. You're also very pretentious, but you wear, but you drink a lot. You wear a lot of T-shirts. You also wear a really expensive bag. And I was like, yeah, welcome to America. That's what it is. And so... <laughs> The first step was how, trying to figure out how to define that online, which is so we just felt we spent a lot of time developing the blog. Mm-hmm. And and then with the agency, it was just trying to be good at my job so I could get more work. Mm-hmm. The only way you're going to get more work, especially as a queer black at the time, 25 year old, <laughs> is to be good at your job. And so we spent all of 2018 and 2019 really just kind of developing all of that. Mm-hmm. And they were all kind of running together. We would do small drops, you know, 
online exclusives. We dressed uh, Max Schneider for his last tour. We did a bunch of custom looks for him. We would do like small projects that were really fun for me. We did we did Fashion Week. At the it, we presented Spring 20. So at the end of 2019, we went to Fashion Week. We did the whole spiel, all of that, while also just working with people, consulting with brands, building a portfolio, and developing a website and keeping our audience happy and figuring out what our model was for our business. And then in 2020, Uh we've just been cleaning that up because, you know, I, and I tell people all the time, like I, I am not some massive corporation. We are four people now, but then we were me. Mm -hmm. And like when I could afford random freelance help, but up until 2020, we were just me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's me trying to run multiple revenue streams, but also trying to connect with an audience of a hundred thousand people. Crazy. And like, so, so yeah, so we just, the next step was defining our brand. And then we spent 2020 cleaning it up, presenting it more concisely in a way that people can understand. And that came through. We developed a partnership series with like AVO Today that went really well that people really responded to. We've done content partnerships with the city. You know, we opened a store so people could see us as a brand. And so it's like, okay, people now have a clear understanding of what this brand looks like, how it manifests itself across these three like pillars, if you will. And so in 2021, like, we're like, okay, on one and upward. I, I love it. Uh, I, I also, I'm, I'm have my computer in front of me. I really like, and I don't maybe tie this together. I really like the four pillars that you present in your, I want to call it marketing or services section. And the four pillars are creative content context and then data i think that of those three the one that really i was ooh is context i think that i i think that that's incredibly important and uh perhaps seen the least when when looking at i'm going to air quote marketing uh, you know, I have a look and feel that I want. I have the, the, perhaps the words or the strategy content. I, I want to know how it's been effective. So let's, let's measure something when we do it. Uh, but the context to me, I was like, let me asterisk that. And I, I'm wondering, how did you choose these four pillars? Uh, how do they show up? What do you enjoy most? Anything in that space? So I'm a creative at heart. Like I, my freelance career before, before I moved to New York, you know, I've been, I have been working professionally in this industry since I was 16. That was the first time I ever cut I ever got a check from a client was when I was 16. And so the first five, first seven years I was in, I was working, I worked strictly in fashion as a stylist and as a creative producer. And so Everything I do starts with aesthetics. How does it look? What is the campaign? That's what made me fall in love with marketing. That's what made me fall in love with fashion. It was the campaigns. It was the commercials. It was Fashion Week. It was all of that. So that's what I love the most. And context came about because 
that is how PR was explained to me. Mm. I am such a product. Uh, I am such a product of my environment. I am so that person. My everything about me comes from the fact of how I was raised in the city that I was raised in with the context of my life, being both being a black person who comes from privilege, being a man who identifies as queer, you know, being black and having a huge uh, family. I have like 400 cousins. I have a huge, all black, dark skin. Like we are some, we are some niggas. I, I got you put that in your pocket, but there's a bunch of niggas in my family. I have like 20 aunts and uncles. In a city full of white people, that has defined me. And then in my career, working in fashion at, at a high level, you know, like, I have been going to Fashion Week since I was 18 years old. Wow. I have been producing Fashion Week since I was 19 years old. So that is that is how I see the world still through that very specific lens and how PR was explained to me and the whole purpose of fashion and, and social media was context. Everyone knows what milk is. The whole point of giving a milk product an instagram account is to make you fall in love with the brand that makes your milk mm. you can get milk from anywhere but what but the social media is the context it's what it's what makes you remember it's what makes you go to the blue box it's what makes you that's what people think about when they're like make sure you get this brand it's not because the products are any different it's the context that they have around it and so when we were kind of developing our services always explain to people that's why you need PR mm -hmm. and that is why PR is not advertising you need someone you need someone else to develop your story and put it in context for the audience mm. i so i i completely agree with uh, PR is different than advertising advertising is different than marketing do you want to take a second and just maybe uh cre create the spaces that you think those three uh, what makes each one different? How, how how do you think about marketing versus advertising versus PR? We have now a sense of PR as as this context creator. Sure. Um, but I, I I often will find ourselves in conversations, and I'm like, oh, that's you're talking about advert like that's advertising. That's not necessarily marketing. How do you communicate those to clients, customers, friends, family? Well, it's, you know, it's always, media is always explained and paid, earned, owned, and shared, right? And so I always explain that advertising is media you pay for, PR is media you have earned, and marketing is where the Twix meet and where owned and shared come into play. And so, actually, no, there is no so, that's it. <laughs> Dang, that was a... Uh, uh... You boiled it down. We didn't even need to circle back around to make it as tight. That was perfect. I um, and 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 it seems then, if I'm hearing you correctly, the thing that speaks to you perhaps strongest is that PR and the the concept. Like, what story are we going to then hand to the customer, to the audience, uh, and 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 perhaps putting those three things together is where your mind lives. Yes, always. I love, I, that's the only thing that matters to me. And, you know, I explained my business to someone the other day and she was like, well, what, is there any sort of client that you don't want? I said, I can work with any kind of product. I just want a story to tell. Mm. Even if it's a shallow story, I just need something to say. 
you know, like I, and what I love about my job and what I love about this industry and what made me fall in love with fashion even was the idea that capitalism and, and, and everyday life is transactional, but, and, and the, so the whole point of this industry is to make that bearable, to give you something, to give you a story, to make the fact that you're about to spend $95 on cologne worth it, to give you something to dream about and put in the context of your life. It's really nice when you when brands show up in fantasy because that's that makes it more tangible to you. I that's very powerful. I I find myself saying that uh, people people don't buy stuff; they buy stories, right? Like they get the the story that they get to tell their friend when the thing shows up, and they go, "Oh, that's nice." I'm like, "Oh, cool. Let me tell you about like cool, my opportunity now to tell the story of either how I bought it, or what the person said as I was buying it, or why I bought it, uh, and all the research that I did." Um. And so people people don't buy stuff; they buy stories. And what what you are is then the storyteller. Uh, I, I would I would challenge the uh, I, I can sell anything. I think a bad customer sounds like a cheap customer. Is that true? One that doesn't understand the value. But would they reach out to you if they didn't understand the value of uh, of a meaningful story, powerful story? No, if. If, if you, if someone who has received something from you doesn't like it, that is your fault Ooh. because you control your audience. Like you are the one who defined your audience. You're the one who pitched this concept to Vogue. Mm. You knew who Vogue's audience was. And so if somebody who, who read a story in Vogue that you pitched didn't like it, that is your fault. <laughs> like, and so, and there's, and it's never a time, it's, it's never going to be right. It's never going to be perfect, but that is, I hate the idea that it's somebody else's fault for something that I gave them. They did mm. not ask for this. Mm. I offered it to them. And if they didn't like it, then I have made a bad assumption on my part. I, I yeah. think that's completely yeah. fair. Yeah. And, uh, the, the pitch versus the contract and then delivering something that they don't love right so it, where are you when you say this is how much it costs and someone's like whoa is that sounds high is, is uh, when i meant to say like a cheap customer is a bad customer i don't mean one that says you didn't do a good job and i paid that i paid you for i mean one that may challenge the price tag or not be willing to invest in the work that you do uh, to the level that you want to deliver what you think. You know what I mean? No, because I work, okay. I mean, I work for nonprofits. There you go. Like, <laughs> they, so they have, everyone has limited budget. And I think, and I have just gotten to, and when I first started and for a while, I took any work I could get mm -hmm. and I found a way to make it work because I needed a portfolio and I wanted, and I wanted to work. I like to work. Yeah. And now I'm at the point where I just tell people you are not ready for this. Got it. Like if okay. you only got $500 to spend and you, and the results of that $500 is going to make or break your business. You need ads. You need something you can control. Mm. You need something that you are paying per click. Like you don't need me because I mean, the amount of times that someone, I have produced a campaign or I've done something 
And then people are like, well, where are the results? And then we're like, I'm like, they're coming or maybe they won't. It just happens. And then six months later, they see the results. And I'm like, right, told you, get out of my face. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's a, that is, I think I was fishing and I, I didn't mean to attempt to put words in your mouth, but that is exactly what I, what I imagined would be true. Like there's a, there's a, there's a range where someone might not be the right customer for you, whether or not you could add value is it perhaps a different story? And if the, uh, it just at some point someone looks like a better customer today now that, um, it, am I right to assume that you're no longer in I'll take any job mode 2020, yeah, right? Like, very, very much so. So there's a shift, there's a, like, I think a professional shift where I agree most people should do early days, anything, everything. It allows you to define who you are and what work you love, right? And you have practical application and experience saying like, oh, yeah, I did something in milk and I didn't love it. Like dairy, I'm out on dairy. Dairy is not an <laughs> industry. I'm cold on the dairy industry, uh, hard nose moving forward. Um, but one, all of a sudden, there you go from this, uh, for lack of a better term like beggars can't be choosers when you are no longer in this like i'm hungry for eating anything i get to choose what's on my plate um there's a customer that looks better than others sometimes it's a budget thing and that is also something that you know something that i really credit my friends for Mm. specifically two of them in the last year Connie from East Fork and Gilly Roberts from Ware are two women who I adore and who I bounce ideas off of. We collaborate, but they also, they have just been on my journey with me of the last year trying to really clean up my business. And just, and one thing Gilly is always talking about is stop undervaluing yourself. Mm-hmm. And there's all, like, stop acting like there's not money out there. And so for me, I just, there is this a realization, I think, with all creatives, especially creatives in fashion, because fashion is so notorious for tiny budgets. Mm. And because you love what you do, you're willing to do anything. And so you're used to taking, you're used to taking crumbs. And then also black and queer creatives, you're like, you don't want people to say no, because you want the work. But then I had to realize, like, people have money to spend, mm. like, there is a lot of money out there, so I need, and people are not going to offer me more, so I need to up my rate. And I also need to rem- realize, especially when you start hiring people. I mean, like my dad's a lawyer, so I'm very, I'm very familiar with the idea of billable hours. Sure. And so now we run like a, we run like a law firm. Like we, it's I said, people are paying us retainers against an hourly. That hourly needs to cover all four of us. And so every hour we're spending is costing me and them money. Sure. And so it's like, it becomes a point where you simply can't afford the work of this agency because it's not just me. Like I am incorporated. You write checks to my business, which means that my business has to stay afloat. And so we have to be in spaces where we can cover the cost to do the work and unless it's a passion project, I take passion projects. I love those, but they need to do something. They need to move us forward. Like if it's a a new idea that's never been done before, they have no budget, but like there's a very good chance that we're going to get on the cover of Vogue or something like that. Fine. We'll take <laughs> we can afford one of them though. But we, we can't all be passion projects. We have to eat. I, I am so in love with the energy and what just 
which is happening. Uh, yes, and yes, and yes. Um, well, that evolution from I'm going to take on jobs as they show up to this billable hours mindset. Are there any, maybe, uh, I don't know if it's specifics, or are there any uh, moments, concepts that really changed it for you? I know that the two things that you've said are that uh, you're, uh, I'm using words that show up for me, you're worth more, and uh, there's more than enough money out there, there being this concept of a you know the world, uh, more than enough money out there, and, and we're worth it. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to live into it. What is allowing you to live into that? The f- I spent some of 2020 and some of 2019 stressed and broke where I was overworked and not bringing enough money to make it all happen. And I kept taking on shitty clients and shitty concepts. Not, and not shitty as in bad, but shitty as in they, they they needed to hire an intern and pay them $10 an hour. They didn't need to pay me. Sure. And be, because I wanted to work and because I wanted my agency to have clients. That's a real thing. When you love what you do and when you're trying, when you, and when you're walking in your purpose, not to get emotional, but like when you're walking in your purpose and you love what you do and you know that it can work and you know why and how it can work and it's not working, you would do anything to make it work. And what was happening was I was so overwhelmed and so overbooked. I was doing a bad job. Mm. Mm. I can't be bad. Like all I have is my quality of work. So once we start doing bad jobs, we can't get better. Job. Like, so once I realized that this, <laughs> this was going to like me making money was going to long run cost me money. Oh, we switched it up real quick and we just brought it down to scale. And, you know, uh, Gilly explained it to me in a very real way from a book she was reading. She's like, business is like nature. You know, as the, as, um, you know, things grow and blossom in a conducive environment. And so it was like, if the agency isn't working, you don't get rid of it. You shrink it down to size and as in, in a conducive environment, it will blossom. And so I mean, and so I've had to take that to heart and we slowed it down. We scaled it back and, you know, through the pandemic, we've, we're slowly starting to ramp it up. We're working with people and we're doing it to scale as we get X amount of new work. You know, we just hired, we just hired a new junior brand manager and we've got someone who works with digital and it's like, okay, like, because this is the work that we're doing and it's all very reactionary and everyone is, we spent all week doing like a sauna breakdowns and, <laughs> all the work that's happening yeah. and making sure we're all on the same page. And because like I tell all of them, it's like, this is how you bring money into this business. This is how you cost this business money. We need to be on the same page about what the goal is. <laughs> like we need to understand what we can and cannot do, which is why we're at billable hours. If somebody pays for 10 hours a month worth of work, do not give them 20. Mm. You, can't, you can't afford it. And so it's, just, it's, the the math makes it very easy to stand in that. Mm. I, so 
I'm going to read back the transcript as I remember it is that <laughs> making money when, when you realize that making money is costing you money, you're, you're able to make. So it seems to me that when you see the spreadsheet, when you, when you can sit with it and know that it, like the numbers say that we're hurting, I can't do more work and I've taken on so much work that the quality has gone down. I need to now maybe finish these contracts, allow the, the environment to, to move back, maybe regress for a moment so that I can grow, so that it can grow, so that you can pull people into uh, the mix, hire people, or find the right type of a client that takes you in the direction that you actually want to go. Yes. Wow. I've never heard, I, I've, I've experienced that moment of I've signed on maybe too much work. I am no longer, uh, one of the things that showed up for me in the past life in a, in a past role consulting was that I had a really good run of getting work. It got real hard to deliver work. Didn't want to build an agency. Didn't want to add people. Quality of work was just maybe okay. But the thing that really hurt was that I stopped doing the things to get new clients. So in those contract terms, when, when it ended, all of a sudden you, you feast to famine and the this life cycle of taking someone from hey we could probably work together to we're working together is typically long. That's not like a you know you're not at the checkout at CVS. Yeah, let me grab a pack of gum. You know, it's not like a discretionary decision. Often it has to be thought through. And so that was um, uh, maybe 2013, 2014 in my world, and I'll never forget it. But I never heard someone say making money is costing me money. And I think well, that's a yeah, yeah, powerful. I, also, what Astro does, like, mm. I, I, like, I was having lunch yesterday with somebody who does, who works with the city a lot on like business development and things like that. And I was telling her, I said, "To let's be clear, when I moved back to Astro, no one offered me an eighty thousand dollar a year job. I did not, you know, I am not turning down blue chip work. And that's thing, my my parents, who I adore, but." They are so like, they're like, why? My mom was like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What's happening? Why are you doing like, she's like, she's like, you have a degree. You mm -hmm. have a pedigree. Like you could get it. Like tell your daddy to get you a job. Like what you doing? Like, and I was like, no one is offering that to me. Yeah. I'm not, like, I've not even heard of them existing. I mean, maybe in the hospital, but I don't even right, know. No, there, no one is handy. All of my friends <laughs> are like, part-time workers mm. and there, and I was the only way I could make enough money to afford Chanel and eat and rent is by having a million jobs. And the only way I can have any dignity about that is to form an agency. So it feels like I'm, you know, I'm not a cog in a machine. I'm the machine. I think it's a huge distinction. And I think that, uh, that as a mental flip that, could be switched potentially is is huge and and sometimes it's just by like striking the name freelancer and saying professional right like business uh i a book that has been hugely impactful in my world i've, I've handed out copies in the past is uh the war of art you familiar with that at all Stephen pressfield um great book for for many reasons, he writes in a very powerful and concise way, but uh, talks about the the difficulties of being an artist, and he defines the the main 
the main uh, antagonist as the resistance, and the resistance largely lives in all of our minds. Um, and one of the key ways to beat the resistance is really just to turn pro, is to be a professional. And one of the ways to be professional is to, you know, stop being 1099 uh, potentially and, and create your own LLC. And you're, it's it's just that like one step, it's $200 oh, a year. Taxes, taxes yeah. that's a huge deal. When I got an accountant and she explained to me that by not incorporating in some way and not filing as an S-Corp, I'm paying 15% more in taxes. Oh, you best to believe we filed S-Corp real quick. <laughs> so, and I, I am having to explain to my friend literally yesterday, I had to, she called me and she's like, I got another part-time job. And I was like, you have to stop because you are now making more than $36,000 in untaxed income. And now you're paying 40% in self-employment taxes. Yes. And no one told me that. Yeah. And so my taxes got all fucked up. And so then I had to hire an accountant. And now that I know that, again, yeah. the math, once the math, math. gets you, the facts, it's like, okay, I, think I am not a freelancer. I am an agency because mm-hmm. I have to be. I am not one person. I am a team of four because I have to be. And so I cannot take work that offers me $500 a month. It does not cover my bills. So there's a lot that just happened in that. And I am so excited by the the addition of the taxes that pl- run a roll. One of the things that I've, I've focused on in the recent years or recent months even is really trying to understand ta- taxes a bit more. I think that they show up a lot in the news for a bunch of different reasons. And one of the things that, that shows up for me is like, I like to try and make things a game. I, if you know Enneagram, we've had a guest on that's like an Enneagram expert. My wife, Sarah, loves the Enneagram. I'm a seven. All I know what that means is that things need to be fun for me to participate, right? For me to do it, I need to, need to have it fun. And so I try to talk about things like they're games. And And one of the things is like, all right, so like if the rules of this game are that the better you know how taxes work, the the better you do air quotes with uh do being you know wh- whatever is important to you but holding on to the money you make could be a important thing for most people so like I, I we just got smart and so last year we also transitioned we're still an llc we were always an llc but like partners filing jointly as an llc every dollar we made was taxable to your point at like 40 percent become an s corp and we're not no one on this call is a tax professional, but you become an S corp. And then there's a differentiation between your net income and the salary you pay yourself and the salary you pay yourself just needs to be reasonable. And the net income can be a different number that the difference between your salary and the net income saves you a bunch of money, saves you like a lot and a lot of money. All you need to do is fill out some paperwork before February 15th. Yep. And when my, I f- when I found this woman who does, who's our bookkeeper now, and I'm like, this is all very new. This is all like yep. a new conversation for us. I was like, it's so simple. Yeah. And yet, and still no one told me, and it, it, it costs me money. It costs me so much money. Real money. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm just aware. <laughs> and, and that's it. And so one of the things that I, like I'm working to is learn those things and then communicate those things. And so don't pretend to be a tax professional, but I do know that, um, that 15% tax difference between your salary and your net income can represent very, very real amounts of money. And the, perhaps a difference between, um, you know, the next stage of quality of life 
and livable wage for someone who is perhaps working less than they were as a 1099 employee because uh, almost half of that money disappeared into uh, the, the abyss of the tax system. Wow. Yep. Didn't expect to go taxes on this call, but I love it. And I, I think that there's there's something to be said. Like I, I wonder, I wonder where this sits with you. Um, but a, a, a big thing for me has been everything that I've been afraid of. The more that I look at it, the less I become afraid of it. And so making money or keeping money, like I grew up from a family that didn't that wasn't good with money. Air quotes. And so I. I'm not good with money, or that's what a past life me would have said. And now I'm about understanding my money. Like I want to know where we're at all the time. I want to know uh, how much we're paying in taxes. And so, is that part of a progression for you? What things have you maybe um, grown into as you've changed from freelancer to business owner, team of four, uh, paying attention to S corp taxes and things like that? Yes, definitely understanding it and also realizing, and once again, I just have to credit Gilly mm. because, I mean, we're very close. We talk all the time. We've we've talked like eight times this morning <laughs> and she called him last night. Um, but, you know, she like, what I appreciate about my friendship is that my friends know I'm a very passionate person. And so they kind of let me just kind of go, mm -hmm. but then they know that I also, am, I process outwardly. So I really need, and I'm not talking to talk. I really want feedback. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, with all the things you want to do and what in the plan you have for yourself and the trajectory you're on, you're going to grow. You don't have a choice, but to figure this out. Like I know I am not a math person. And I am never, and it's not that I couldn't do it. I just don't like it. And so I know I'm not going to try to figure out QuickBooks. So I hired an accountant. I don't have a choice. And for the record, she's not expensive. She's like a hundred, $150 a month. It's not crazy. Yeah. Like I spend more than that at a bar in <laughs> two days. Literally like the amount of money that people in this city spend drinking. Like, sure. If I need to go out less so I don't have to worry about the IRS knocking on my door so I can feel like having and think about having an accountant who's just there, who's just in my bank account. I don't worry about it because there is a professional who's just doing it. And so my job is just to make enough money to pay everyone, <laughs> myself included. We're just trying to keep it moving here. I heard. <laughs> I love that. I, I there's a there's a lot of parts of that that speak to me. One is. Um, is the idea of like what got you here won't get you there, right? So you got to this one phase, you have a vision of what the future looks like and you have to ask like what things I need to give up to get there. Like what what parts of me, what concepts, what uh, what things that I do will have to change to become that person. And if only it's, well, I, I pay professionals to do things that I'm not great at or don't want to ever become great at. That's a huge moment. That's like a, that's like a, uh, that's something that if you're not getting reps at or very close to someone who's living into that, I don't know. That's a very hard thing to do to start handing jobs out or to hand money to a thing that 
I know I can do. I know that if I had to, there's got to be YouTube videos on QuickBooks. Right. There's a lot of them. <laughs> I, I just, but to save $100? That's a making know. money is and costing the, you money question. For jail? For, <laughs> I'm just not. And you know what, what it really is, is that it's, it's a learned lesson. Hmm. I, because I have, I, because I have fucked up my taxes before and I know how much that costs. Mm. I am not willing to do it again. And because I have done bad work before because I took on too much and undervalued myself and that has, and that's something from getting more work later, I'm not willing to do it again. It's like, it's, this is all like dating. I have the same relationships. I have the same conversation about men. Like I have done that before. We are not like I've done dating. I've dated closet guys before not doing it again. Not because he's not cute, but because I know how this ends and I don't like it. Mm. And so I'm, I refuse to be insane and to do something, do the exact same thing and expect a different result. I think at some point, all of the people that I admire in most places make draw lines in the sand like that, where it's I'm OK. I realize that I'm a human and that I, I will make mistakes. I just if it's inside of my control. It, those mistakes don't happen twice. That's a that's a huge, yeah. That's a huge thing. Wow. Okay. So, twenty twenty, and now we're in twenty twenty one. We're early days in twenty twenty one. You mentioned at least in the past week, you did a huge Asana rollout. Maybe uh, my my wife. I, I introduced Asana to her. Now she's introducing like next level Asana implementation to me. Asana is uh, very important. What things are you thinking about? Um, what are the next stages, let's say, in jaw breaking? What's top of mind? What are you thinking in 2021? I have every intention of fucking shit up this year. <laughs> Like, I am in such a, like, I am such in a space where I am, where life is good. Like, I, moved, I just moved to a new apartment, and I love my apartment. Like, <laughs> me, like, my relationships with my family are good. I'm enjoying my friends. Like, I am trying to take stock of the world that we live in and trying to just, like, deal with all of that and also trying to work. And so the only thing I can do is to kind of like take things. My, my goal for 2021 is to do everything that I have to and to dream really big at the same time. Mm. And so I want to have a bunch of ideas and like dream of the, the best things that I could do and produce and projects we can work on. I'm pitching all the time. I have sent out three unsolicited pitches this week for like crazy conceptual projects. Cause I'm just like, I just want to do it. And a closed mouth does not get fed. So we are going to throw it out there, put a number on top of it, see what happens. And every single day I'm trying to get up, make my coffee and do the job that I have to do so that my, my world keeps spinning. And then on the weekends and at night when I'm drinking wine and watching the news, I just want to doodle about all the crazy shit I want to do. And I want to fuck shit up because I am so tired of the same conversations. I'm so tired of, the way the city operates and I have just in the last year, I've met some of the most amazing people and some of the most creative people. And I'm like, the things we could do 
if we just got into our bag and like and just took risk mm. because there's not the thing about you can take risk when you do everything you're supposed to do because that's because I'm not risking anything over here. I'm paying my taxes. I'm doing my stuff. La da 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 da. And so if I want to take a risk over here, I got a risk account. Mm-hmm. And right now it's in it. But when it's got a couple thousand, we about to do something weird. You know what I mean? Like, and I just so like my goal is really to look at all parts of my business, the the website, the store, and the agency, and I want them to. I want them, I want to create ideas and projects as if they existed by themselves and we were at, we were ready to go to the next level. I don't want to, I don't want to, I refuse to miss another opportunity. I'm going to say that. Heard. Can I ask, um, maybe highlight a 2020 project that you think might be closest to representative of some of the things you have in mind for the future? Or, or directionally is pointed towards where jawbreaking 2021 is, is headed? Uh, our webinar that we launched last year called Don't Ask Your Black Friend, which is on anti-racism or anti-racist marketing practices, is was a game changer for me and my thought process. Just in terms of I remember when it comes to the agency, because essentially the webinar is a two hour webinar where I am just talking and then there's a Q&A at the end and then people can book private processing sessions where we just kind of check in or whatever. And to be clear, this is not DEI work. This is not equity training. This is a marketing conversation rooted in the idea that you want to create safe pathways for white people to talk to people of color. And... These pro- and the processing sessions are essentially people just paying me to be a part of their marketing team for two hours. Mm. I don't have to take any notes. I just sit back and I talk and we bounce ideas off each other. And it reminded me how much I love branding and how much I love discovery. And and part of you know hiring this new junior brand manager who I'm really excited about is that I can't take two hour calls once a day if I am trying to execute all this work. Sure. And so I gotta have someone who's executing work so I can do shit like this. And I can take, you know, and I can do consulting work and take random projects that feel good because the clients who have us on retainer who pay these bills are also being taken care of. And and then so the webinar really changed how the agency works. Obviously opening the store was really great for our brand and just for me reminding myself that I do have a degree in fashion, that my background is in fashion, that I can't, I have done this before because I have just forgotten that because I've been doing so other types of marketing that I forgot that I, 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 at my core, I am like, a, I am a fashion kid. Mm. And the series we did ABL today and the writing that I've been doing this year has been, has gotten a lot of really great responses. And I was like, so this is what happens and again, it's a learned, it's a learned behavior. My 2020 was really good for me, not because I made smart investments, but because I took the time to do something I was good at. I started writing more and started having really important conversations, and our traffic went up 18,000%. <laughs> that is a real number. <laughs> Sounds like a fake number. That's amazing. Oh my goodness. And I and I convinced 
I convinced another media outlet to to boost my website for a month. Mm. The series I do at ABO Today was on my site. So for a month, they were just sending all of their traffic to me. Yeah. And people are and, and people really enjoyed what I had to say. And now I'm doing speaking engagements and getting paid for them. And now There are a lot of opportunities coming simply because I took the time to be good at my job. If, if there's a single sentence, I think that there's, there's something really, um, I'll call it mas- masterful in that statement where it's, if you can, if you can focus on the little things like being good at your job, uh, opportunity, not always, not always, but opportunity has a funny chance of showing up at your doorstep. Um, and it seems like you have done all the requisite work to be good at your job. I try. I love it. Um, with that, because I, I, I feel like you've buttoned the 2021 fuck shit up uh, goal really, really nicely. Uh, I want to pivot to Asheville as a community. And so one of the ways that I I start this section is to say the word Asheville, the word community, what shows up in your mind? Well-meaning white people. That is what Asheville is. I feel like I fall into that category. (laughs) I I, I mean, so well. Um, What, what, oh, man. Because I, I, I'm now processing well-meaning white people, guilty. Um, where has it evolved from growing up in Asheville to today? Are there any mile markers, things that stand out for you? Well, when and to be clear, I always the preface. My time in Asheville is my, my experience in Asheville was very specific. Mm-hmm. And it is not indicative of a, a standard black experience in Asheville. But when I was growing up, Asheville was 30% black. Hmm. That's a real number. And now it is like 10. Yeah. Also, Asheville's just gotten a lot richer. And it's gotten a lot more, not showboaty, but it's gotten a lot more divisive hmm. in the sense that. You know, I said what I said. I grew up a certain type of way with a lot of privileges and I know very rich people and I grew up around very rich people. And no one, and it didn't matter. And it was, you you knew that, but that wasn't stopping you from meeting them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like my dad grew up in the hood. My dad grew up in Hillcrest. He is one of nine. He went to law school at a 10th grade level. I did not, I do not, I do not come from, from, I don't have generational wealth in my family. So the fact that some poor black kid from the hood becomes vice mayor, first black person on city council, my dad, the people my dad represents, the work that he does, the impact that he's had on the city and the state and the, and, and the reputation that he has is not because of privilege. It's because of, dem, of democratic access. He was smart and he was around and he was available 
and connections were made yeah, and then up or from there. But now Astro has changed a lot where it's like you don't really have an opportunity to meet people who could change your life. Mm. Like if you're not already in the bubble, you don't, there's no, you don't have a way in. Like so often now the people I'm meeting, there's a person I met re- recently who I just adore and she's amazing. And I won't say her name, but if she hears it, she'll know who she is. And she is old Southern money. And she's fantastic. And she, her husband runs a $2 billion hedge fund. Different. Like, she's educated, pedigreed, wealthy white woman. Also, her family is the sweetest. And the reason she reached out to me was because she read a a profile on me and then, like, asked around, realized that I was bona fide and that we come from the same world. And so she reached out and wanted to go for drinks. We do the whole thing. We love to talk designer bags and da 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 da. And we're great friends. But the connection was that we both come from privilege. And so she knows that I'm not going to judge her for carrying a $12,000 Birkin. And she needed that to feel comfortable. Mm. And her husband, who has, like, has talked to me about being on the board of his, I don't know. I don't know what that would do in my life. You're on the board of a $2 billion. I just don't know how that could change my life. But the fact sure. that that's even a conversation, it probably won't happen. He was drunk when he offered. But the fact that that's even a conversation yeah. is not because I'm good with money. It's because we're in the same social circle. And that, But like someone who's trying to be an accountant in Asheville, who's trying to get into finance, that could change their life. The connection could change their life. And they will probably never have the opportunity to gen- to genuinely bond with them. Somebody might reach out on some white guilt shit and they might say like, oh, equity and this, that, and the third, and I want to give you a chance and here's a scholarship. But that is not a, that's not an equal relationship. Mm. Me, and, me and this woman and her family, we are friends. We, we res- they respect me. I have been to their home. I am not looked down on. And no one should be. But the reason that I am not is not because I'm so great. It's because my parents have money. And that is very, and that is very much how Asheville is. There's not a connection I have made in my life on my own as a business owner that does not tie back to the fact that when the people, when people meet me, they know I don't need their money and I'm not looking for a handout. And so they're more willing to take the meeting Hmm. and that's gross. A lot to, for me personally, I want to sit with that. I, I, I look to our kind of vision board for what making it in Asheville has the potential to be if we do right and, and we and we put the work in. Um, aspirational. I don't, we'll probably have to call on you and your expertise in some ways. But um, it, it is a hope that in some way this platform gets to be one small piece in a connection building system that maybe doesn't exist yet, but could, um, in the months and years ahead. Yeah, I would love, I think, you know, I have so much hope for, there's such a community in Asheville. Asheville is nothing but community and everyone wants to be helpful. Mm. And I think the one thing that, I mean, I, I've, started dating this this person and they're white. And one of the things that showed up for me when we first started dating was that like, 
I am uncomfortable with how woke you are trying to be and how delicate you're trying to be around the fact that I am black. It is, it makes me very uncomfortable. I don't need that. If I was fragile, I probably wouldn't have asked you out. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. like, and that is, that same experience happens all the time. I don't need someone to thank me for my lived experience. I don't need people to like, you know, rush to open the door for me. I need you to see me as a valued member of society with my own agency, my own autonomy agency in the sense of self-ownership, not heard, business. Right? Heard, heard. So my own agency, my own sense of autonomy and respect me, not because I come from money and not because I make money, but because I'm a human. And then we have an actual friendship. But when relationships are starting with equity scholarships and like this hyper intentional desire to relieve white guilt, it might, it, I mean, it might redistribute wealth. And don't get me wrong, it's a good thing. Hmm. But it doesn't change the social aspect of it. And at the end of the day, when 70% of people are making business decisions from inside their social circle, if you're not in their social circle, you're not a part of that percentage. And there's not a, there's not enough white guilt in the world to, to fight nepotism. Fact. Yeah. I'm feeling inspired. I'm feeling inspired. Um, favorite place to to get a drink? You mentioned now getting drinks with people. You mentioned, uh, you know, uh, grabbing a glass of wine. Maybe that's at home. Where do, where do you go even now in a pandemic or before? The only place I go to drink is. Bottle Riot when it's a nice day and I can sit outside mm. or Pink Moon mm. that is outside and they have heaters. Yes. I do not go in. I do not eat inside restaurants. I do not drink inside restaurants right now. But I and Pink Moon like holds like 12 people. Sure. And it's so warm and it is outside. And and Ethan, who does the wine program at both Bottle Riot and oh, wow. at Pink Moon, actually. He is really great with natural wines and because he has been my bartender for so long and my friend, he's also a really lovely writer. But because he has been serving me wine for so long, he literally knows what I like (laughs) and what my friends like. And so when me and when me and Gilly go get a glass of wine and Ethan is there, we don't I said, I don't know what I want. I want something funky, full body, whatever. He brings me something amazing and then I buy the bottle. And then Gilly says she wants something from the north, something salty, a little briny. He brings her something and she loves it. And I'm like, yes, this is all I need. <laughs> it is as simple as that. I think Bottle Riot is a, um, both Pink Moon Bottle Riot are really great picks. The um, the moment when Sarah and I kind of looked at each other and were like, ooh, Asheville. We weren't at Bottle Riot. We were at um, the Wedge, but it was that okay. same kind of gravel plot. It was a beautiful day and it was the first time visiting Asheville. And I was like, Mm, this is like a Saturday every once in a while. <laughs> like that's not bad. If this is at, you know accessible all the time, um, it seems like this could be really nice. And, um, and what I love about Asheville is the same thing I loved about New York. And that's why and everyone always asks, like, oh, well, why did you move back and how mm-hmm. can you stay here? It's like, hey, yes, my family is here, so it's fun. But also, I when you, like the way fashion works is that everyone's making 
$25,000 a year, but wearing Chanel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're working like 20 hour days. They're also going out all the time. Yeah. And so I love, I love a world where you have no money, but you still have money for wine. And it's good wine. I do not like shitty wine. I do mm. not drink shitty wine. And so if I cannot get a nice bottle or something, I will be sober. And what I, and I love that. That's what I love about Astro is like you could be in a gravel parking lot and have a really amazing glass of something that only exists here. They've only like there's only one case of it, and it's at Crocodile Wine or something like. And and I'm willing to spend the forty dollars on it because I want it, yeah. <laughs> and it's and I'm having a really lovely conversation and a really lovely community. And if I need to be broke to do that, so be it. Here, here. Um, Jefferson, how can our audience connect with you? Find you on the World Wide Web. Um, you can find us on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Mister Jawbreaking. Same with Instagram. Um, our website is jawbreaking.xyz, and that's also the Instagram handle for um, jawbreaking. So find us, follow us, tweet me, do all the things. Love it. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you.